Who is my true father? Only Merlin can tell you that. And who is Merlin? I am Merlin. Whose son am I? You are the son of Uther and Ligraine. You are King Arthur. Merlin! We haven't forgotten you! What trickery is this? They're both He's trying to voice a fatherless boy upon us! Do you want a bastard as a king? Early underground, join us against the boy! I saw what I saw! The boy drew the sword. If a boy has been chosen, a boy shall be king! No! I challenge that! The sword has been drawn! Are you with us or against us? Against you! They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid mimes. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there, folks. Welcome to the 58th episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. I'll be your host for this afternoon. My name is Jeff Kelly. And we'll have Russell a little bit later in the show. So today, since it's the second Monday of the month, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite films, the 1981 epic medieval fantasy film Excalibur. You know, I was 20 years old when this film was released. That was a long time ago. And it was my introduction into the King Arthur and Knights of the Round Table legend. Okay, I had seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, one of the Funniest films ever made, but I don't think that counts. Now, this was during the period where I was really discovering movies. I mean, I always watched movies, but in my youth, what we watched was very limited. We had no streaming or on-demand, no Blu-rays or DVDs, no VHS or Betamax, anything. In Chicagoland, we had three network TV stations and three or four local TV stations, and that was about it. If you didn't see a film in the theater, the only hope was if one of the TV stations would show it, and then it would probably be heavily edited. Now, at the time of this film, home video and cable TV were just becoming big, and suddenly I could watch, you know, on HBO an unedited R-rated film, or I could rent it at my local video store. So seeing a film like Excalibur was something amazing at the time. This is one of those films that I remember I kept catching on cable. Now to this day, I've never seen the 1967 film Camelot. I, I suppose I should watch it one of these days. And I've never read Le Mort d'Arthur by Thomas Mallory. And I, I'm assuming I pronounced that correctly. And that's what this movie is loosely based on. I think not knowing anything about the legend allowed me to enjoy the film much more than if I would have known a lot about it. You see, I had nothing to compare it to. There was none of that, they got this wrong or that wrong, or wondering why they changed this or left out that. You know, all those things that people say when they compare a film to a book or whatnot. All those things people shouldn't do. 
Now, special effects in films these days are amazing. But if you've ever watched the ending credits of a film, such as Avatar or one of the Marvel films, you'll see hundreds of names of people who worked on those special effects. And hundreds of millions of dollars are spent getting those to look so great. And to be honest, a lot of them to me, and this is an old man talking, look more like a cartoon than a live-action movie. So when I watch Excalibur now, I'm more impressed knowing that those special effects were all done in camera. Yes, they can be a little clunky at times, and some of them, well, they aren't perfect. But that adds to the charm of the film. I mean, when you see a fire in a scene, there was a fire there when they shot that scene. Excalibur was co-written and directed by British filmmaker John Borman. Interestingly, and this is just a coincidence, Borman is also the director of next week's film, Zardoz, from 1974. Anyway, before Excalibur, he directed films such as 1965's Catch Me If You Can, starring the Dave Clark Five, 1967's Point Blank, starring Lee Marvin, Angie Dickinson, Keenan Wynn, and Carol O'Connor, and that's a terrific film, by the way. And then the film that really brought him acclaim, 1972's Deliverance, a film with many very uncomfortable scenes. Zardoz was the first film in which he was the writer and director, and then in 1977 he directed The Exorcist II, The Heretic, a film that is considered by many to be one of the worst films ever made. I can't say I've ever seen it. I mean, the, to me, the original Exorcist was enough, and there should have never been a sequel or a second sequel or a prequel or whatever they've done to it. The original Exorcist was plenty. Thank you very much. It might have been the failure of Exorcist II that accounts for the huge gap between it and this film four years later. But in reality, I think it was the studio he was dealing with. He had been trying to get a King Arthur film made since 1969, or even earlier. He said it was a 20-year quest. Borman had been obsessed with the King Arthur legend ever since he was a child. His daughter tells us that when they were small, that would be their nightly bedtime story, a tale of King Arthur. But the studio wasn't interested in a Knights of the Round Table film, and they asked him to work on adapting The Lord of the Rings. So for months he worked on the script, and when he was ready, well now the studio wasn't interested in it anymore, so he went back to work on Excalibur. I wrote the original script myself, Borman said, but at some point I got stuck on it. It was a bit too long and convoluted, so I got Rospo in. Rospo Pallenberg, and Rospo, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, had worked with Borman on both The Exorcist II and Deliverance. Borman continued, You see, I was determined to tell the whole story of Mort D'Arthur, and that was restricting the amount of time I had to develop the characters, the themes, to make everything work. He did a very good job, and he actually straightened it out quite a lot, as well as coming up with one or two extremely brilliant ideas. One was to have... Uther Pendragon, Arthur's real father, and the primogenitor of the whole saga, if you like, drive the sword into the stone rather than Merlin, as in Mallory. And the other was to progress the whole story in several bold jumps forward in time. He goes on to mention some of these jumps, like when 
Uther rams the sword into the stone. Then we cut to 18 years later and Arthur is grown. Things like that. The same thing happens when Mordred goes from a young child to an adult. And that's one thing I really appreciate in this film. It's efficiency. I mean, it's a huge story taking place over a long period of time, from Arthur being conceived up until his death as an old man. I think some of the bad reviews, and we'll get into that a little later, was people not getting that or being confused by that anyway. Some might say that Borman messed with the legend, but one must remember that there are many different versions of the story, and each writer over the centuries has made the legend their own. Now, one of the first decisions he made was the period the film would take place in. He chose the time right between the Druids and Christianity. The one God comes to drive out the many gods. The spirits of wood and stream grow silent. It's the way of things, yes. It's a time for men and their ways. But in all, he wanted it to be timeless, almost as if it took place in another magical world. The armor, for instance, wouldn't have been from that period. It would have been from centuries previous. But he said it would have been a great mistake trying to make it look real. It's pointless because the myth is much stronger than reality. Borman declared, The thing about myths is that they're a body of stories completely homogenous and interrelated, yet also completely flexible. You can rearrange or extend or elide the order of events quite liberally without destroying the meaning. The essentials that make them popular, the resonance remains the same. The film was shot on a very small budget, so Borman and his crew often had to find inexpensive ways and simple devices to make it look magical. Now, most of the film was shot in Ireland, a lot of it practically in Borman's own backyard. And it didn't start out well. When the rushes of the first day came back, they were totally black. After reshooting those scenes on the second day, those came back black. The cinematographer was so distraught that he had a nervous breakdown and had to be replaced. He was replaced by Alex Thompson. Thompson had been working since the late 60s, but had fallen on hard times. He had just been fired from Jesus Christ Superstar. But for this film, he would be nominated for the Academy Award and would go on to have a great career with films like The Year of the Dragon, Legend, Labyrinth, The Craze, Alien 3, Cliffhanger, Demolition Man, Executive Decision, and many more. It rained, Borman said, every day, so often that the cast and crew had to spend hours waiting around for a break in the weather. But on the plus side, the rain gave the forest a brilliant, almost magical green. And green was the color of the film. To make the whole thing look magical, Borman decided to use green filters on the lights during the outdoor scenes to make things like the moss on rocks have an almost unearthly glow. And you can often see the green spot shining off Excalibur or the armor. Speaking of the armor, that was created by a man named Terry English. And according to Borman, half the medieval armor you see in museums was created by English. Terry was first asked to make about a dozen suits, and then more. And by the end, he made 106 suits of armor, all in a three-month period. He also created, at the last minute, 
the silver headpiece worn by Nicole Williamson as Merlin. He made that in about 10 minutes because Williamson decided at the last minute that he didn't want to shave his head like originally planned. The film is, of course, filled with young actors who went on to have great careers, and we'll get into them a bit later. So what is Excalibur about? Well, quickly, there was a king named Uther Pendragon in medieval Britain who wielded the sword Excalibur. Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur! Forged when the world was young, and bird and beast and flower were one with man, and death was but a dream. But on the verge of peace, he decides he must have the Duke of Cornwall's wife, Igraine. He turns to Merlin to help him, well, rape Igraine. So, you need me again now that my truce is wrecked. Years to build and moments to ruin, and all for lust. For Igraine! One night with her. You don't understand, you're not a man. Merlin agrees on the condition that any product of this union will be given to him. In other words, if Igraine conceives a child, Merlin gets the baby. Merlin transforms Pendragon into a semblance of the Duke. So while the real Duke is being killed in battle, Uther's having sex with Igraine. Igraine thinking she's having sex with her husband. Her daughter, Morgana, watches and seems to know what's going on. Of course, this night of passion produces a child, Arthur. A man came to me. I loved me. I made this child. When Merlin takes Arthur from Igraine, Pendragon runs after him only to be ambushed and killed. But before he dies, he rams Excalibur into a huge rock. Nobody shall have the sword. Nobody shall wield Excalibur but me! It will stay there until the next rightful king of the land can draw it from the stone. And 18 years later, his son, Arthur, will pull it out, and that sets up our story. Your sword was stolen, Kay. But here's Excalibur. Oh, he has drawn the sword! Kay! Did you free Excalibur from the stone? Yes. No, I didn't. Arthur did. The sword! The sword! Arthur, along with Excalibur, will meet Sir Lancelot, marry Guinevere, knight Percival, and deal with his half-sister Morgana, who thinks herself a wizard like Merlin. The trouble really begins when Lancelot decides he is a thing for Guinevere. Oh, and Arthur gets his half-sister pregnant, and that leads to the birth of a boy named Mordred. I have conceived a son, my king. My brother. I could be our brother. But I want you to live to see our son be king. The whole thing is sort of a rise, fall, and redemption story. 
for both Arthur and the land because, as we find out, they are one. Now, one thing that struck me right away while watching this film back in the day was during the wedding of Guinevere and Arthur, I sort of wondered, do all knights have formal armor? I mean, they were wearing gray and black armor, but suddenly for the wedding, they all have these shiny, chrome, beautiful, fancy suits of armor. And I was wondering, was that a real thing? Did that exist? Or was that just made up for the movie? I don't know. But what I do know is I've talked long enough and need a break. So now I'm going to let Russell take over and he's going to tell us a little bit about the Arthurian legend. Whoso pulls out this sword from the stone and anvil is the true born king of all Britain. Hello, celluloiders. To give some context on John Borman's Excalibur, we're going to take a very brief look at Arthurian legend and its role in classical and pop culture. King Arthur was supposed to have lived in Britain in the period between the departure of the Romans and the arrival of the Germanic tribes of the Angles, Saxons and Jutes circa the 400s. This was the start of the period known as the Dark Ages, when record keeping was a bit basic, and despite the best efforts of scholars throughout the ages, there is no one person who we can actually say was the historic King Arthur, though he is popularly theorised as a member of the Romanised Britain nobility who kept the barbarian hordes at bay for a few years. Historic or not, the Arthur's legend is real enough, and the first tales are known to have appeared in the century after his supposed death. These early stories depict him as a chieftain of a warband who takes on the Saxons, rival warlords, supernatural opponents and whoever, but through the efforts of storytellers and medieval minstrels over several centuries, this transformed into an idealised version of the feudal kingdoms of the time. Geoffrey of Monmouth's fanciful 12th century History of the Kings of Britain depicted Arthur's mysterious conception through the magic of Merlin to Tadgill, his prowess as a warrior and leader, and his betrayal by his son Mordred. Then later, writers and storytellers like Cretan de Troyes expanded on this and added new characters and side quests like Tristan and Isolde. The stories were mainly related orally in this period, as the popular pastime to relate legends and sagas at evening gatherings, plus not a lot of people could read back then, and these were known as the Matter of Britain and the Vulgate Cycle. In the later medieval period, they were written down and or formed the basis for newly written romances like Mallory's Mort d'Arthur or Death of Arthur. Mallory's version was one of the first books published by pioneer printer William Caxton and has formed the main basis for later versions and adaptions and features Arthur's concealed childhood, pulling the sword from the stone to show he's a rightful king, the gathering of Sir Lancelot, Bevedere, Galahad, Percival and other knights of the Round Table, receiving Excalibur from the Lady of the Lake, the love affair of Queen Guinevere and Lancelot, the quest for the Holy Grail, the bewitchment of Merlin by the Lady of the Lake, the seduction of Arthur by Morgan Le Fay and the birth of Mordred, and his ultimate final battle with Mordred and his final rest at Elvalon. Interest in Arthur declined in the post-medieval period, but the Victorian enthusiasm for everything medieval meant the legends were revived, with Arthurian themes appearing in Tennyson's poem The Lady of Shalott and Wagner's opera Parsifal. And the rise of mass literacy and cheap printing in the 19th century helped Arthur become known to the mass audience. 
It also meant that writer Mark Twain could parody them in his Kinetic Yankee and King Arthur's Court, and the audience would understand all the references. New book versions continued into the 20th century and were popular Christmas gifts and could be found at any library. Some of the best were these were T.H. White's Sword in the Stone about Arthur as a boy, later adapted by Disney as an animated feature, and The Once a Future King, which was adapted as a stage musical and film Camelot. There are also Marion Zimmer Bradley's Miss of Avalon series of novels. Other notable Arthurian adaptions were the 50s UK TV series The Adventures of Sir Lancelot, starring William Russell, who later on was the Doctor Who companion Ian Chesterton. Uh, there were assorted other TV series about Arthur and or Merlin. There was the 1970 Robert Bresson film Lancelot de Luck. The 70s Australian cartoon series Arthur and the Square Knights of the Round Table. The classic comedy Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the later stage musical Spamalot. And multiple adaptions of Twain's story with Will Rogers, Bing Crosby and even the Disney sci-fi version called Unidentified Flying Oddball where a modern astronaut lands at Arthur's Court. There's also Rick Wakeman's very 70s concept album and the long-running comic strip Prince Valiant. Arthur also turned up in episodes of TV series like The Goodies where they have to stop the local council tearing down Camelot for a motorway, Doctor Who where the Time Lord formerly known as Merlin tangles again with Morgan Le Fay, and Babylon 5, where King Arthur actually returns to save the galaxy. Elements of the story turn up in Star Wars, where the Merlin-like Obi-Wan has accreted Luke Skywalker a foster family until his destiny can be revealed, and perhaps most poignantly, the legend's theme of a good ruler who brings forth a golden age until betrayed had a residence with the President Kennedy, whose White House is known as Camelot till this day. Over to you, Jeff. Hey, thanks, Russell. Um, you made me realize that there's a lot about the King Arthur legend that I haven't seen before. But, you know, the idea of whether there was a real King Arthur or not doesn't intrigue me all that much. I mean, I think it's better if he's a myth. But the one character that does intrigue me is the Lady of the Lake. What's the deal with her? Does she just lay in the bottom of lakes waiting to give out Excaliburs? I mean... Why is she there? Where did she come from? Is she a god? Was she put there by the gods? I don't know. Anyway, back to Excalibur. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet. Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up. Oh, but if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they put me away. I think my favorite scene, if I had to pick one, is the scene where Arthur, soon after drawing Excalibur, leads a group of supporters to Leo de Grance, whose castle is under siege due to him supporting Arthur. During the battle, Arthur jumps from a castle wall, knocking Urians, as played by Keith Buckley, off his horse, and both wind up in the moat. Arthur holds Excalibur to Urian's throat, wanting Urians to swear allegiance to him. Swear faith to me, and you shall have mercy. I need battle lords such as you, and no will not. Swear faith to a squire. Never! 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 
this is out of the question because Arthur isn't a knight. In a move that surprises even Merlin, Arthur hands Urien's the sword so he can be knighted. You're right. I'm not yet a knight. You, Urien's, will knight me. Then a knight tonight. I can't offer you mercy. This act convinces Urien's that Arthur is truly the son of Uther Pendragon. Rise, King Arthur. I am your humble knight, and I swear allegiance to the courage in your veins. So strong it is, its source must be Uther Pendragon. I doubt you no more. Now, like I said, the film contains many young actors who would go on to have great careers. In his first major film role, we have Captain Jean-Luc Picard, Professor Charles Xavier, Sir Patrick Stewart, OBE. I saw what I saw. The boy drew the sword. If a boy has been chosen... A boy shall be king! Patrick was born in 1949 and at the age of 82 is still acting today. He plays Leo de Grance, one of the knights who support King Arthur when he draws the sword. I can't say enough good things about Patrick Stewart. Not only is he a great actor, but he also has a wonderful sense of humor. And he's been doing it forever and received almost every award an actor can have, with the exception of the Oscar. Liam Neeson, a man with a certain set of skills, plays Gawain, a knight of the round table who challenges Guinevere about her relationship with Sir Lancelot. He's our best and our bravest. Why then is he never here? Without Lancelot, this table is nothing. Is there anyone here who doesn't think of a god? Liam was born in 1952 and was a small-time theater actor at the time. Excalibur was his first film, and of course he's gone on to a huge acting career. But at the time, he was young and inexperienced, and began having a relationship with Helen Mirren. Neeson said Mirren was instrumental in him getting an agent. Gabriel Byrne, who was born in 1950, plays Uther Pendragon. The land from here to the sea shall be yours, if you enforce the king's will! Like many of the others, it was his first major film role. One problem they had was his strong Irish accent. But of course, he's gone on to be a film director, film producer, screenwriter, audiobook narrator, and author, as well as being a brilliant actor. Egraine, the young woman who is raped and gives birth to Arthur, is played by Catherine Borman, the daughter of the director. Is this true? Don't let him take the child. She was born in 1960 and was 19 at the time of the shooting of this film. Borman said he and his daughter had no problem doing the topless rape scene. After all, it was just acting. Her biggest problem was simulating sex so close to a huge fireplace. She said in an interview that once you've been shagged by a knight in armor, watched by your father, there's no looking back. She also plays the lady in the lake as her father couldn't find any other person who was willing to lay in that cool water for so long. Another one of Borman's children, Charlie, plays the young Mordred. You seek what Arthur wants? That thing they call the Grail? I do. Then follow me. 
Charlie also played the young child at the end of Deliverance. According to Charlie, he probably only got the part so his dad could save some money. He was 14 at the time. The beautiful Cherie Lungi plays Queen Guinevere. I've made these only for you. I've mixed into them things that will heal you. Not too quickly. And they'll make you a little sleepy, so you can't escape. I have to admit that I only really know her from this film. Cherie is an English film, television, and theater actress who had done a lot of TV in England before Excalibur. She is still acting today at the age of 71. About the only other film I would have seen her in was 1994's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I may have to watch that again. In Excalibur, she comes across with a perfect amount of charm and intelligence. I want to use the word innocence, but that's just not correct. She tells the story of when they were shooting the naked erotic scene in the forest, that first of all, it was a cold day, and then the moss they were lying in was filled with biting ants. Borman also says there were many mosquitoes that day, but both her and Nicholas Cray as Sir Lancelot had to act with an unbridled passion. Very difficult under the circumstances. Speaking of Nicholas Cray... I am Lancelot of the Lake, from across the sea. And I have yet to find a king worthy of my sword. An actor who lived from 1946 to 2000, and who died at a very young age of 53, he had a very successful acting career beginning in 1963 in the British horror film The Damned. Cherie called him a sweetheart, beautiful outside and in, just a gentle, loving gentleman. Paul Jeffrey plays Percival. Oh, well, then you can tell me the way to the kitchen. The young man who lucks his way into being a knight and ends up being the one who finds the Holy Grail. Paul was born in 1955 and had only done bits of TV work before he was cast. He was originally up for the part of Arthur, but after being told he didn't get the part, got a call back to audition for Percival. And then there's the great Nicole Williamson. He plays the wizard Merlin, and I've talked about Williamson in this podcast before, and I will again. I just loved his acting. I am Merlin. Whose son am I? You are the son of Uther and Ligraine. You are King Arthur. He lived from 1936 to 2011. The thing is, he was Borman's first and only choice to play Merlin. However, the studio said no because his last few films with the studio had been bombs. After looking at many other actors, Borman finally went to the studio and said it was going to be Nicole. Now, when he went to Williamson to tell him he was going to play Merlin, Williamson asked who was going to play Morgana. As soon as he heard it was Helen Mirren, he said no, he couldn't do it. Apparently, the two had worked together and had some sort of relationship that didn't end well. When Borman went to Mirren, the conversation was similar. She said she couldn't do it for basically the same reason. Whatever happened between the two must have been pretty bad. But in the end, both agreed, and it worked out for the film as Morgana and Merlin didn't quite get along. <laughs> Dame Helen Mirren, DBE, as Morgana Le Fay. Don't you know me, Lord Merlin? Morgana of Cornwall. I remember you. When my brother Arthur was born, you came and took him away. And now you leave his wedding. 
because I'm a creature like you. What a career she's had. It would take a whole podcast and maybe more to talk about her accomplishments. Like Patrick Stewart, she's won about every acting award ever, including the Academy Award and a British Academy of Film Award. She's great in the film as the evil conniving Morgana. And finally, there's Nigel Terry as Arthur. I will build a round table where this fellowship shall meet. And a hall about the table. And a castle about the hall. And I will marry. (laughs) And the land will have an end to wheel Excalibur. Terry lived from 1945 to 2015. He was one of those actors I really expected to see a lot after this film, but I don't remember seeing him at all until he turned up on a Doctor Who episode in 2008. He did such a fantastic job going from the young squire to being a king to an old man seeking redemption. Nigel claims it was the hard work of Borman who got such a good acting performance out of him. It's funny listening to some of these young actors talk about their lack of understanding before Excalibur at how filmmaking worked. They were all stage actors, and the idea of doing take after take and such was all new to them. Helen Mirren talks about a time when a certain shot was all set up, and when they went to film it, she suddenly decided that she wanted to do it differently, much to the anger of Borman. She was from the stage where you could change things on the fly, but in a film... She didn't quite get it that it took a long time to set up a shot, and it was a major issue to change the setup. One minor complaint I had with the film, and it's very minor, was that Arthur becomes a confident leader very quickly. Yes, there's a scene right after he pulls the sword from the stone where he seems lost and confused, but moments later he's a strong and confident king, barking out orders. Maybe this is a result of him being the son of Uther? I don't know. And also, the film was almost two and a half hours, so maybe it had something to do with time compression. I mean, how much time could you have spent on him learning to be comfortable with his new role? Now, on Rotten Tomatoes, the film gets an 80% audience score, which was fantastic. Actually, higher than I figured it would. Andy Kay gave it five out of five stars, and he just wrote... Best Arthurian legend film ever. Pretty strong there, Andy. I would like to agree with you, but I've seen very few, so I don't have much to compare it to. Bill A. also gave it five stars, and he wrote, Seeing this in the theater makes it come alive in a way that video at home does not, but I still get chills at times with the telling of the tale. Satisfying adventure and important symbolism that may be lost on modern savages. First of all, I'm envious that you saw this in the theater. I would have liked to. But it's a bit arrogant of you to call modern viewers modern savages. I don't know. Mackay S. only thought this film deserved three stars, and he had this to say. This campy, overacted medieval epic lobs out some striking visuals that have aged rather well while telling a compelling story with satisfying characters and plot development. Okay, you think it's a compelling story with satisfying characters and plot development, whose striking visuals have aged rather well, yet it only gets three stars because it's campy and overacted, I guess. Thomas L. gave it only two stars and wrote, Old movie, very long and nothing happens. 
nothing happens? Okay, Thomas. Maybe you might have missed a thing or two there. Ingrid M. only gave it a star and a half, and she wrote, Frequently beautiful to look at, but the acting is abysmal across the board despite the depth of the cast. And with every detail of Thomas Malaroy's tale crammed in, the plot is bloated and meandering and will be difficult to follow with anyone not already familiar with the source material. It proves in the final third when it gives up any attempt at coherence and just leans into the trippy and dreamlike quality suggested by the visuals. Also, playing O Fortuna a couple of times does not constitute an effective score. Well, Ingrid, I think there was a lot more to the music than just O Fortuna. What about all the Wagner and the original pieces? Did you miss all that? I guess so. And you know what? I've never read the source material, and I had no problem following the story. It made total sense to me, but maybe I'm a genius. Spoiler alert, I'm not. Thank you for your opinion. A reviewer who failed to leave his name gave it only a half star, and he or she wrote, Seriously? Gloriously savage? Perfectly cast? This is perfect fodder for MST3K. You know, reviewer, I'm not even going to take your comments seriously as you failed to leave your name. Have the guts to stand by your opinion. But let's get back to the music. Composer Trevor Jones did the original score. Excalibur was one of his earliest films, but he went on to do many films such as The Dark Crystal, Nathan Hayes, Runaway Train, Mississippi Burning, Cliffhanger, The Last of the Mohicans, and In the Name of the Father. But I have to admit here, his original music takes a backseat to O Fortuna and um, all the music by Wagner. this type of movie. I have to admit, Camina Varana's O Fortuna is something I was originally familiar with due to the fact that Ozzy Osbourne used to use that in the opening of his live shows. I mean, it's such a powerful piece, probably one of the best short pieces of music ever written. The scene near the end where Arthur and his knights ride for one final battle and they're riding through those beautiful fields of trees or whatever, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Now finally, Borman said one of the biggest problems filming this movie was all the Irish extras that were used. Apparently during the battle scenes, the fighting, once he yelled cut, it was hard to get them to stop. Surrounding the vortex are the outlands. Passionate, barbaric, dying. Where hordes of exterminators freely slaughter on the command of Zardoz, god of the vortex. The gun is good. The gun is good. Go forth and kill. This is a race against time. 
in a timeless world. A startling look into the future. Zardoz, a film by John Borman. A little bit before I go, I really didn't talk about the horses at all. Apparently, for the most part, they used polo horses because polo horses are used to being around other horses and don't shy away. The one exception was Robert Addy, who played the older Mordred. Robert was an experienced rider, so they were able to pick any horse they wanted for him to ride. Having Helen Mirren and Nicole Williamson in the film together, considering their past, had some unexpected consequences. Like, for instance, they both came up with their own way of saying the charm of making. Borman had to tell them, since Merlin teaches it to Morgana, they should both say it the same way. Now, by the way, according to Wikipedia, the charm of making... Speak the charm of making. Can be translated into Serpent's Breath, the Charm of Death and Life, Thy Omen of Making. It's Wikipedia, so take that with a grain of salt. Hey you, do you have any thoughts on Excalibur, The Charm of Making, or anything or anybody connected with this film? Did I get anything wrong? Would you like to add some information? Let me know. I'd love to hear your comments. You can send them to daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Daysofcelluloid, all being one word. Email me with your thoughts, opinions, film suggestions, anything, even just to say hi. You can use our Facebook page, it's called Celluloid Days. Or our Twitter page, it's at celluloid underscore days. I'm up to 56 followers. Woot! Next week, I'm going to tackle a film I've never seen before. Well, I should say I've never seen the whole film before. I've seen parts of it. It's another Borman film, Zardoz from 1974. Of course, this will mean that I have to watch Sean Connery dressed in that red, um, I don't know what to call it, costume? Anyway, I'm hoping Nancy and possibly Gordon will join me for that one. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, make it a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Russell, for your contribution to today's show. We'll be back next Monday. Take care. Stay healthy. Goodbye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I 